Hello, welcome to Medicine Box Voices. My name is Sam Giglani. Here we go in pursuit of conversations about medicine, not just about what it is and what it does, but about what it means, about the whole surprise of human life, its inevitable weathering, and the challenge of how to care for all of us. Hello, I'm here in Cardiff today with uh, Dr. Mark Tobert. Mark is a consultant in palliative care and a senior lecturer in Cardiff. Mark, welcome to Medicine and Box Voices. Hello, Sam. It's a pleasure to finally meet you <laughs> and to speak to you as well. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, I'm going to just ask by, start by asking you to tell me about your encounter broadly with death. What is that encounter for you? I'm going to have to think about that one a little bit because I've encountered so much death and dying throughout uh, my medical career, even starting off as a as a medical student. Uh, Can you I remember your first encounter with it? Well, I suppose I, th- I think back to the death of my grandmother in Germany, visiting her in a in a nursing home. Uh, before she died and and um, I was I think in my early 20s at that time and it really affected me and um, you know it was it was one of the first times I really had to think about it and I was reading lots of books and lots of literature at the time and uh, I remember having quite a delayed reaction to it so it wasn't one where I learned that she had died and then I was immediately sad It, it took me quite a long time to process it and then all of a sudden uh, I, I got very emotional about it and, and I just tapped on. So that was my first grief experience. And I think, I think, I think grief is such, a, such an interesting area, which I always find is so dependent on where you are in your life and what is happening. And What was happening at that stage? Were you training as a doctor or before that? It was during my training. And in fact, at the time, I was doing a elective sort of special study module as a medical student in, in Paris. Um, and uh, it was the summer, so I had a bit of time off, so I went to visit her, and I, I'm so glad I did see her, because it was shortly before she died, and uh, we had some conversations, and I purposefully took some some photos along, and we talked about these photographs, and whilst she was quite old, and she couldn't remember a lot of stuff, she, she did, did, did trigger some of her, her, her memories looking at the photographs. You were close to her? Um, yes, uh, as close as you can be, because she'd lived and she'd lived in in East Germany, and my father had left East Germany before the fortifications really went up, and so for a long time he couldn't see her, and it was very difficult for us to see her without visas to the uh, because we came over from West Germany and we had to apply for visas, and it wasn't very straightforward. And of course, he was seen in the light of the previous SKP, who's coming back again. Um, but uh, yeah, I really liked her. We we got on really well. She was very funny. I remember us being very funny. And then this was the the first big loss, which um, which I kind of remember very clearly. Do you mind if I ask? I mean, when we you talk there about being sad, and that that's often um, an emotion that we associate with death and 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 the loss of someone we know or love. <clears throat> Do you think? I mean, obviously the experience would be very subjective and particular to a, to any 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 situation but do you think when we feel sad or when you felt sad there 
that was primarily about the loss of another human being who you love? Or do you think it just taps into something immediately wider than that? Uh, two things for me. Um, number one, I think it was about the realisation that I wouldn't see her again. That was the first thing. But then number two, if I think about it in the wider context, I suppose not the, the only, it wasn't the only emotion. Sadness wasn't the emo- only emotion. It, it triggered memories and also very happy happy memories that I can remember her by. And I now know that years later, I, I felt that we are quite prescriptive as a society about how grief should occur and and what it should look like, especially nowadays with all the social media that are about. I mean, if, you, if you're a grieving person and you dare to go on holiday and there's a smiling photo of you, then there must be something wrong with you. Um, you know, people will comment saying, well, it's a bit early to be having a laugh and a drink on holiday, isn't it? Um, and And I know that grief is so unique to each human being and I think psychologists have identified 40 or 45 different factors that influence an individual grief episode and 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 so it makes it as uniquely um individual as a fingerprint nearly your your grief experience it depends on whether you're 55 45 25 it depends on your language to some degree where you've grown up your culture is very strongly um I suppose you know prescriptive of what a grief episode should be like and unique but universal and universal as well Mm um i mean i remember um meeting a korean family and uh, learning what uh, grief looks like in 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 korean society which is very very expressive and um very expressive and i think when i when i researched it further they have um professional grievers that come to funerals and ceremonies who who actively express the emotion um very vociferously and i found that absolutely fascinating but uh, i think we're all sort of on a on a spectrum of that grief but equally you don't want to sort of disenfranchise those grievers who want to be quiet and want to grieve in their own private moments uh but when they go about their daily activities their work or their 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 their, their other life they're quite happy to be natural and to be smiling and laughing or, or maybe still going out for a, a meal with friends without that open expression of I have to be a portray the the, 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 the the grieving widower or the grieving widow. And as a doctor now in palliative care, you, what, how many deaths do you experience in a week? One a day do you encounter most days? I'm um, in the... Cancer centre, I would say, um, usually one or two per per week. Um, I'm often not a witness to the actual, actual dying uh, moments. Uh, actually, it's often often the nurses or the family members or uh, who who might be on the wards, and it's quite a private private moment. And I'm, I won't be there in the moment of death itself, but I'll be there in the sort of the last hours or the last days, for instance. And we have a lot of conversations around that topic. I sometimes talk to people in the room I was talk directly to the, the the patient even if they might not be able to hear me and and that's just a habit that I've acquired over the years uh, just in case they are able to to understand who the new person in the room might might be um, but yeah so I, I do experience it from that angle a fair bit but I'm not always necessarily there at the at the moment and that's of interesting isn't it I share that view that <clears throat> as you get more more further on in your career you get 
slightly more separate from the yeah. the immediate moment of it. But I remember as a junior doctor, and I'm sure you do, yeah. often being present yes. very close to those yeah. moments. And the fact that, <clears throat> I don't know, I mean, you, you read a lot, but I don't know if you've read any Carol Shields. Um, she talks in the Stone Diaries about there just being almost nothing that separates the moment from life from the moment of death. Mm. These two extreme states of being are right up against each other. Yes. I mean, I actually talked to this with a junior doctor uh, the other day because there's there's that moment when when you're in a room and you think time might be quite short and the breathing gets more interrupted and more more erratic, and and then the wife or the husband is sitting there holding the person's hand and they look at you. Was that the last breath? And you're sort of you're looking at them and and then you're looking at the individual who is dying. And you're not quite sure. And then there's another breath. And the breathing has become very much more uh, intermittent. Mm. And they're saying, is that it? Was that the last breath? And and you're looking at them and saying, well, I I don't know. And if we wait a bit longer, sometimes this breathing can be, there can be long intervals. And um, I find that quite hard, actually. I find that quite difficult. And I think families find that quite difficult as well. What's difficult about it? It's... um, it's awkward. It's, it's, it's they because they look at you as as though you you will be the expert and you will know. That's yes, that was. I mean, you, you watch some of the medical dramas yes. like House MD, and the yeah. House MD goes in, walks into that room, and says, yeah, dead. Um, you know, very firm diagnostician, very sure, self assured. And I, I don't think I've ever been that self assured. However, I come across, I I kind of always happy to play around with doubt and I'm not quite sure and I express that and I tell my patients and, and their family members that as well. So I suppose they look at you for, for, for guidance and, and then you look back at them and sort of say, well, I'm not sure, I'll wait a <laughs> bit longer. Um, and But you're there to guide them and, and actually sometimes I just say, look, I'm not, not quite sure, uh, let's wait a little bit longer. But isn't that um, interesting because we talk about the uncertainty in diagnostics and the last year of life and there you are in the last minutes of it, Yes, not being able to really call the last breath yes and and i'm, I'm pretty hopeless at it actually because I, I i remember a few few times where i thought oh this must be really the last five minutes or so but the person was still having some sort of um you know brain activity that was going on and, and it went on for several hours and it, it it just reminds you that each individual human being is so very different and in, in how they'll respond and what will happen in those last minutes hours of life can you just say a bit about um this central as it seems to me increasingly central conundrum for medicine which is that even if i look at my 20 plus years as a doctor if i think of myself as a houseman in bath and now clinical oncologist 13 years into my career what i can offer patients in the way of treatment has transformed Un- it would have been unthinkable. Um, it's almost science fiction compared to what was the fact in the mid-90s. And those treatments, if we think about targeted therapies for cancer, immunotherapies, monoclonals, um, are extending remissions in a disease, in diseases that might have once been thought of as untreatable, um, prolonging life, alleviating um, symptoms and suffering. All the hallmarks of medical progress. Um, Yet we still have 
we still worry about medicine's encounter with death and how it meets individuals who are dying. Mm. <clears throat> now, is that? Do you think that worry is misplaced, almost navel gazing? That actually, in the march to progress, our eyes should be firmly set on prolonging life with marvelous new technologies, which, let's be honest, have delivered astonishing outcomes. Yeah. Um, or do you think there is something awry in medicine and how it how it meets the fact of death? A bit of both. I'm not going to give you a straight answer on that one because if I were to look at it from my point of view or what my patients have said to me, then I work very closely with the oncologists. And I think if I were if I, if I were a patient myself, then I'd go to you and I'd say, look, I've I I, I have this this cancer and I want you to see if you can balance quality of life with with prolonging it maybe a bit further as much as you can you'd want that as a person i think so yeah and it depends on where i would be in my life quite but um i'd perhaps want to make certain um key events in my life like when i see my children growing up maybe uh, having significant events in their in their life and 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 then perhaps maybe my my aspect would would change a little bit but I, I see all the successes from the oncologists, and I had a very interesting discussion. I went to one of the uh, uh, consultant away days for Velindra, which is 95% oncologists and a few palliative care doctors and radiologists. And uh, I was listening to, to them talking and saying similar things to you, how transformative some of these therapies are. Overall, though, I think the average life expectancy hasn't prolonged all that much. So... But let's be individualistic here and let's talk about someone who maybe has a, a prostate cancer or um, has another cancer that might be amenable to, to immunotherapies. I, I suppose each individual will happily take the chances and, and, and the risks and, um, and, and have a chance of maybe prolonging things by a year, maybe two years, maybe five years or so. And, and, and I was talking about escalations of treatment discussions with with my patients i was quite frank i said to the oncologist like um that i felt that a lot of them were perhaps when five ten years ago they were having a lot of these discussions i felt that had declined somewhat and they were kind of pushing their patients through the therapies and perhaps the tre escalation treatment discussions about things like cpr and, and itu and things like that weren't, weren't coming into it anymore and that's interesting you feel there's been an ebb in those conversations yes yes um considerably so i think and some of my colleagues have, have felt that as well why do you think that is well and, and i asked that question and i and and one of the oncologists said to me well mark you have to realize that you know, some of my patients in the prostate cancer setting are, 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 are having sort of prognoses of up to 10 years or so and I sat back and reflected on this a little bit, and I thought, well, that's I'm aware of that, and I, I, I meet those those patients as well. But I suppose that's not all of them, and you do have a lot of patients that have significant other comorbidities, other illnesses, several long term conditions, and cancer is only only one of those long term term conditions. So the risk of dying, the the risk of death, is is certainly there. And exploring perhaps what an individual's view is on where they would want to be might even happen when someone is relatively well. So I talked to them about 
you know you can take your 10-year prognosis patients but you've got a lot of patients also who are really really unwell and you know you might make them a little bit better for a little while admit them to the hospital antibiotics treatments therapies and i actually often have the treatment escalation discussion when they're feeling a bit better yeah. so i'm saying this might seem a bit strange to you me bringing this up right now uh, and you're feeling a lot better and i'm really pleased about that i just wanted to talk to you about when you go home what treatments you would feel acceptable did you think this time around it was all handled in the in the way that is suits you as a individual as a human being and there's a often sort of nodding heads or sometimes they sort of mm, shrug their shoulders a little bit and they sort of say well some aspects maybe not so and then we have a real discussion about where they think their care should be and we don't just talk about things like cpr and itu that often comes at the end we often talk about basic things like would you go through the radiotherapy experience again would you want to go through the immunotherapy again i suppose i see some of the negative aspects nowadays of chemotherapies and immunotherapies no, yeah. so maybe a little bit skewed in, in, in my views but they'll, they'll come up with some quite well, honest say, opinions i mean that's interesting you say skewed in your views because i guess we'll all see the pros as well as the cons but do you think do you think, I mean, we're, 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 we're kind of holding oncologists up in the spotlight here, but do you think there's a propensity, given that medicine can do so much more, almost to be um, abdicating from that conversation? It's, it's comfort. It's, I'd rather, rather not have upsetting or difficult conversations on a day-to-day basis. They take up time. They have a weight on me. There's a, there's, there's you know, you can cause upset let's put to one side for a moment the, the benefits of them yeah. but you can do you think progress such as it is the ability to do so much more helps us to retreat from those conversations yeah i i often think of myself if i'd not trained in palliative care and become an oncologist what i would be like and i think i would probably be the worst kind I would probably really be trying to sort of shirk these difficult conversations and I'd be doing business as usual, getting through people through chemotherapies, immunotherapies, because I suppose it's become a bit of a sort of hiding place for, you know, you, 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 I suppose you, you, you want to create hope. You, you want to give people that, that hope and that, and that sort of, oh, there's something else we can try. Um, what are the chances of that working? Or oh, 0.1%. Well, at least it's something, you know, and I think I'd be quite, probably quite a bad person. Well, I suppose there's different, various conceptions of the good, but yeah. when you say, I'm really interested in that turn of phrase, a hiding place, mm. what are we hiding from? Pain? We're, we're hiding from our own pain. Our and, own pain? Yes. I think introducing yeah. the topic of, okay, so Sam, we've, you've had this treatment recently and... Mm, things have spread, uh, the cancer spread across your body. I, I want to talk to you about the possibility of things going really bad and, and, and your death and your dying. And you might not expect that conversation. And I've gone straight in basically like an absolute bombshell and you blow your top basically. And I suppose that reaction, I think most doctors have had that reaction from patients or family members. I mean, I remember having an absolutely fantastic conversation with a 93-year-old lady and she was really quite happy to talk about it but in the evening she phoned her son in london and said oh i have this conversation with with dr talbot and we talked about 
resuscitation in ITU. And I think the way she introduced it then back to him made him think that I'd just gone in with this big agenda. Yeah. And then he phoned and said, how dare you talk to my mother like that? And, and, and it, it just, it's such a sensitive topic that it's sometimes just easier, ah, maybe I'll avoid it. We'll discuss it next time. Um, and, and you kind of, you hide away from it because you don't want the potential pain of your patient looking at you saying, what are you talking about? Death, dying. And when you have these conversations, I mean, I guess there's the pain of the possible recrimination <clears throat> or the response. Mm-hmm. But also, I guess, I wonder whether your experience is anything like mine, that it almost almost inevitably, and part of our job as a doctor is to contend with this, surfaces our own particular human and shared pain, or yeah. an ache anyway. Yes. And yeah. that's something that we would prefer to retreat from it's still the elephant in the room um however much we think now that the taboo is being broken down and it's being discussed more openly i think it is being discussed a bit more openly in in society but um i think the reality is if you look out with social media and media more generally that i'll speak to a family from a traditional background in in wales or the welsh valleys and they'll say it's not something that we like to talk about um, and please don't bring it up and and then that's me and I've got my marching orders and it's it, it really is something that I then don't necessarily discuss again unless I have permission and I often sort of say oh I'm sorry I hope I hope I didn't offend you by bringing this topic up and uh, would you mind if I if I brought it up again in the future potentially and then they usually say yes that, that would be okay but do you feel it yourself so do you mm. feel Mark Talbot's pain Hmm. having those conversations i mean not drawing a straight line to the loss of your grandmother but will that feeling be rekindled in having the conversation well i'm struggling answering that question because i think yes there's always going to be a self-reflective element in there and i'm and going to remember yes I, i'm going to remember all the different uh, losses and experiences that that I've had, and how they were delivered, or how they came across, or the bits that I missed in the past, even even when I was a junior doctor, uh, experiencing the, the the death of someone close close to me. Um, in fact, I suppose the pain of that late realization, I think that's fascinating. And there's some research coming out, I think, this month about how good the human brain is at abstracting your own death or the death of someone that's close to you from someone else's death. Gosh, that's interesting. So if, if, you, if you're presented with, with, with visual cues um, of other people dying and then a visual cue that comes by surprise of your own death, your, your photo with an RIP or an obituary notice, your brain processes it in a different centre to, to, the, to the previous images. Mm. Even if it's uh, sort of a conscious recollection, yeah, it's, yes. something's being triggered. Something's being pushed away. Yeah. Um, and that's an active, active process, which is perhaps evolutionary. Yeah. Um, and I suspect that I'm, I'm not immune to that at, at all. You've thought a lot about... I mean, given you've been very balanced in what you've said about medicine's um, duty both to intervene to prolong life, but also to recognise what we both probably agree is the inevitability of death, even though there are people out there that would question that inevitability. Um, 
you've talked a lot then you, 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 we, you know we've had conversations around how one navigates that conversation that the conversation and the truthfulness within it mm. seems central to how yeah. we can help other people meet yeah um say a bit about that i've got different ways of introducing the topic i think and i've, I've developed that style and maybe you've done the same thing over the years so if, if someone is really coming in very much from the cold i'll have a certain way of introducing it and and sometimes they they respond to that and we talk about you know the possibility of going outside and being hit by a bus and that everyone is going to die and mortality is is, is still universal the last time i checked and 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 then that as a sort of gentler introduction as to what you you see your own mortality is as looking like and then I have sometimes more, more, well, very different conversations with with people who've who've really, really thought about it, and uh, have a lot of views. And then we have conversations about my experiences and and where I think things are going. And you always, I think, you always have to remember that everyone comes at this with a very different experience angle, and they don't necessarily know what angle you're coming yes. from and what you've seen. And you have to translate that somehow. So even with aspects like do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation decisions and the talk CPR mm. uh, Wales resources that we, we, we created, you, you expect people who come into hospital to have all this information and mm. understand all this stuff that took even me um, years and years and years to fully comprehend and I'm still learning about it's impossible. It's really impossible having a, a conversation where you're sort of both fully informed. Uh, well, it's not impossible, but it, it's it's very oh, difficult yes. to achieve. You kind of need to try and put as much educational resource out there as you possibly can before before the conversation. And happens. with the individual in front of you, almost find find a route in to that conversation. Yes, I was struck by your um, letter to David Bowie when you you after he died. Um, and in writing to him and commenting on a conversation you were having with a patient where his music became almost the bridge between you and her yes. as a way of having that conversation. Yeah, yes, that's right. And commenting on the abstract concept of a celebrity's death and how they've died becomes then a, a conversation or a conversation starter for how you might ex expect your own death uh, to happen and... And I'm not immune from that. So I'm, I've certainly thought about what my own death might look like one day, what I would want, what I wouldn't want. I've discussed with my wife, you know, my views on, on certain areas. If I fell off, you know, I cycled to work. If I fell off the bike and smashed my head open and ended up on ITU, what I'd find acceptable, what I wouldn't find acceptable. So I think she has a bit of an idea uh, about about that, whether she likes it or not. Um, and, uh, you know, we talk openly about it, but I expect, I suppose I, I've become maybe more natural at bringing up the conversation now and it, it requires some bravery, I think. It's interesting uh, that you use that, <clears throat> that word, sorry to interrupt, yeah. almost, because if anything, I wonder sometimes if it's viewed, medicine can be quite a macho terrain and i think i just wonder sometimes if um one's inclination to have those conversations either as an individual or as a specialty mm. is not viewed as adequately macho rather than actually conversely it requires clinical what i call clinical bravery i agree with you yeah I, yeah i mean 
I'm just struck by a, a ward round I went on recently and one of the junior doctors came along and uh, she then later commented, I, I can't believe you, you managed to bring up the, the topic of escalation of treatments and DNA CPR as part of that busy, busy like uh, ward round, lots of noise in the background, only the curtains around you. I, I would have found that very difficult because I would have felt others were listening in and and I said, you know what, I, I completely didn't didn't clock that. Um, it's just become, I suppose, so second nature. And the, conver- the the patient was also very much into the conversation and found it very interesting. We're, our eyes were locked. We were having this, this this detailed discussion and really interesting discussion as well. And the patient did a lot of the talking that I forgot that there was other people observing us in the room. And uh, What's the bravery then? What's the act of bravery? What is that threshold? And my, my pulse rate always goes up, I think, when I'm about to have a significant conversation like that w- with someone. Um, so I, I know that I'm going into uh, an unknown situation that, that might have potential to escalate and, and the person might get quite angry or, or, or quite offended. And that has happened to me in the past, especially when I was a junior doctor. So I've learned from that. Um, so pulse rate goes up a little bit and then I relax when I know that the conversation is, is mutual. And that's, you've talked about that a few times, Mark, mm. about the, you clearly find these, I'm not saying all of them, of course, and you're as human as the rest of us, but you clearly find the conversations and the quotes and stories that emerge interesting. Mm. They, they, they draw your attention. Mm. Has that always been the case? Yes, I'm interested in in human beings and how they respond to things and i think very closely and deeply sometimes for for weeks afterwards about where that person was in the individual life journey or 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 hospital journey and what i was saying and how they might have reacted to it so a very reflective process which i find quite helpful but i remember one one lady she um she was on the in the cancer center, and um, she, um, I'd I'd been contacted by Harriet Madley. She's a, a theatre uh, writer and producer in London, and she wanted to do a play about palliative care, uh, which she did eventually. It was called The Colours and was shown in London's West End. But she was using patient stories from Belindra Cancer Center uh, with myself and from. T. Alwyn Hospice in, in, in Swansea. Uh, and one of the ladies on the ward that I found for her to, to interview um, was someone who was quite a challenge to talk about escalation of care. And she she knew what I was up to. Um, so whenever we had conversations about this topic and I tried to introduce what treatments she might want or not want, she's I, 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 I see what you're doing. You want to talk about cardiopulmonary resuscitation and mark i'm not massively keen to talk about it at the moment certainly not quite ready yet but she wouldn't stop there so she would continue talking and i would just sit back and in my usual style i wouldn't interrupt and on that particular morning she kept talking and she kept talking and then she um she was not looking at me she was looking at the ceiling and she was trying to envisage what might happen and then she talked herself out of wanting future CPR and then it was nearly like she woke up she went oh look what you've just done you've made me talk about it 
and I didn't really want to talk about it at all. And you did that on purpose. <laughs> and we, we both laughed because, you know, I think it would have taken a quite a lot to prove that I was doing it on purpose. I was just being a good listener. <laughs> but we, we kind of had a good laugh about it. And I said, what do you want me to do now? I mean, do, do you, I can write that down, what you just said in the notes, or I, I don't, we don't have to. And she went, you know, but put it down. I want everyone to know. Um, and, and she was such a character. I mean, we had such good laughs together. And she was featured. She was one of the peach, people that was featured in in the play, which I went to see in uh, in, in London. And um, it was a wonderful experience. And I'm I'm glad to say that the Colors <coughs> is going to tour in in Wales as well and come right. back to to Swansea as well. And if I have time, I just wanted to yeah. tell you a quick anecdote anecdote about Paul Harriet. So Harriet Madley, the theatre producer, had 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 in, had taped. Uh, like you're doing right now, right now for your podcast, hours of interviews with with different patients, and particularly on this one busy Tuesday when she came along on my ward round, and she said, "Oh, it's brilliant! I've got so much good material, Mark. It's absolutely fantastic. I'm going to listen to it on the train on the way back to London." And then I got a text message three hours later that the tape hadn't worked. She recorded all this stuff, these absolutely amazing conversations with with these different patients. And for some reason, there was a failure, so she she couldn't hear back what she what she'd actually said, and she was absolutely devastated. So I didn't hear for, from her for two months, and then she came back and recorded Re-re- a lot of this stuff again. Uh, again. I think you have to sort of dust yourself off when that when that unspeakable event happens, and uh, and, and come back. It's interesting, though, isn't it? How often the I mean, coming back to that point about the macho and the bravery, how often what you're described is you know label the soft stuff I, I do wonder increasingly certainly now I can pretty much on my phone google everything I need to know about medicine because mm, yeah. I don't remember most of it yeah but this stuff yeah the stuff that actually impacts on what people believe mm. you and I know that you can go to the with the same set of clinical symptoms or pathology to five different doctors and come away with very different understandings and recommendations yes based on those doctors yeah. biases and language yes what i believe as a patient yeah and therefore what i do is really impacted upon by the language that person chooses yeah yes i think i mean i don't know about you sam but i i have a little bit of an excuse when it comes to, to language culture and and politeness i I, I'm clearly not from the UK. You can hear by my accent that I'm German, and I think, I think sometimes that there's a big Welsh lilt in there. Right? Yes, so yeah, you, but... can, you may deny it, but it's there <laughs> anyway. Go on. I think uh, that nearly has meant over the years that I've been able to maybe, or I certainly feel like I've been able to get away with a bit more because I grew up in Germany. I grew up in, grew up in a village where everyone, everything was very frank and clear and direction and. When you went to the butchers, you didn't say please or thank you. They thought you you were mad if you say please. Can I have some beef? Uh, so in Germany, you say ich ich krieg ein Stück um, Fleisch hier and a bisschen Rindfleisch, and yeah, you will give that to me, and you will give that to me, okay. and it's, it's very directive. So when I first came to the UK, I was kind of translating um, from from German a little bit, and people started saying, "Oh, Mark, it would be nice if you said please." Um, <laughs> so I learned very quickly. That there's, there's a cultural element to it, but it's, I think I still thrive of that directness of the, the the area of Germany that I I I grew up in, and I went to Scotland first to do my training. Now I found 
people in Dundee were also very direct and, and, and we bounced off each other and that worked really well. So are you suggesting the conversation, the difficult conversation as it's um, labelled, is easier in particular, more straight-talking terrain? Yes, I think uh, it's easier um, when people know what to expect from you and when you've been quite clear from the outset what sort of person you are and I often sometimes say to people look I'm 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 quite frank I don't necessarily beat around the bush I hope you're okay with that Um, but equally I'm also okay to take the conversation more slowly and see how you're getting on 99% of the time people will say I want you to be frank I want you to be completely honest and then we've nearly I've gotten myself a little bit of permission there yeah and then I build in little questions occasionally saying, are you okay to continue? Should we stop? Yeah. So I want to put the person firmly in control of the conversation and able to ask lots of questions. But they'll still get my trademark frankness, um, my, my Germanic, you know, kind of, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you as it is. And maybe they see me as a quirky foreigner and they ask me all sorts of questions that maybe they, they haven't asked of someone else. That's I don't know. And final word, you read a lot. Mm-hmm. It's no secret that the, the premise of Medicine and Box is what value the arts broadly conceived bring to the whole business of the medical encounter. What does that does that equip you in any way? Now it's difficult even to get the lang- the question phrased well here. I'm not saying you'll borrow from Dostoevsky for your encounter with Mrs. Jones, but does it? What does it do in terms of? What does it infuse you with? for that that encounter and your choice of language or your sensibility so i don't want this to sound in any way pretentious but one of the authors that i've enjoyed most and i feel most comfortable with in reading is thomas mann a fellow german and the book that i'd like to mention give a special mention to today uh, is not Death in Venice, which a lot of people know, which is a great book as well, but is The Magic Mountain at Zauberberg, which is um, one of the books that I read quite early on and have reread uh, time and time again, which is about a, a man at the beginning of the 20th century called Hans Kastorp, and he goes to a sanatorium in the Swiss mountains, which it becomes clear is, is Davos uh, Sanatorium. And it's a very interesting political critique of, of of the time of the decadence of the time uh, but it's also a medical critique of um, doctors and medics and the arrogance and how each one of them has different views on what might work or might not work the quackery that goes on the sort of the the sort of demagoguery of of medicine and how these these doctors and these healthcare practitioners get elevated to this to the status um, that they don't really deserve. And, and Thomas Mann was a very interesting critic of that. And I think he he critiqued that because he spent a lot of time in a sanatorium. I think it was Davos um, because of his wife had TB. Um, and this was this high-altitude cures that they were putting forward uh, at the time. So when was this written? What, 100 years ago? Uh, yeah, about 100 years ago. I think uh, the Magic Mountain is set just before the First World War. And do you, what you've described there, that um, set of characteristics or traits, the notorieties of medicine, do you think those are alive and well today? Absolutely, yes. 
I think they're still very much there. If if you ever get time to read that book, uh, perhaps you'll recognize some of the characters within it in your in your own world. So I, I certainly do. What does it do? It shows us ourselves. What does it, it shows us ourselves, and it shows that the wheel is always turning. That we're always coming back onto ourselves. That the personalities will always be there. You read the plague by Camus, or you read uh, the Magic Mountain. These characters are recurring throughout time. You go back 200 years, 300 years, whatever. The 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 oncologists, the uh, you know the immunotherapists, they're, they're all there. 500 years ago, 600 years ago. And therefore, what if we are open to um, being shown ourselves? What you're saying, it at least holds the possibility of um, change. What of reflection, of transformation, or is it just a mirror? It's a mirror, but it's also hopeful because I think sometimes the, one of the most hope inspiring things for for some of my patients is when they hear that they're not the only ones who are going through this or have gone through this and there's others who have done this and they find nothing more consoling than when they are able to speak to others who are going through the, a similar situation and and that sharing of those moments and that sharing of talking perhaps about the the, the doctors uh, you know who are involved in the care the Sam Guglani's, the Mark Talbots, um, is, I, I think, quite, quite, quite powerful. So our, our approach to mortality and our illusions of immortality will, will always be there on, on some sort of spectrum. But we can learn from others and how they've dealt with these things. But that conception, that articulation of hope, then, is one of kinship rather than immortality, isn't it? Yes. I think, I think that's the, the one thing that I would find I would go back to time and time again even for those people who've who've lost someone who, who are grieving terribly for someone that they've lost when they're able to talk to others who've gone through a similar situation or realize that they're not alone in the world and that this has happened so many times before and you can do that through literature and I think through new media modern media social media podcasts for instance uh i i think you can you can connect uh with with others through doing that i i i think of your podcast i think of the grief cast by Cariad lloyd for instance where comedians talk about their their grief experience and i know so many people who i've recommended that to and they found that they've connected with one comedian in particular about just one thing that they said and, mm. and they really found that quite helpful Mark Tubbert, we will have to end on connection. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Sam. It's been a pleasure. Medicine Unbox keeps its large audio and film archive online. Do take a look. But for now, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy it.